I want you to look with me in Luke 23. Look in verse 32, please, if you would. This is the crucifixion scene. I want to talk to us today on, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And there were also two other malefactors. That's criminals. Led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, that's the place of crucifixion, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood, beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Can't you hear him saying that? He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him on a sign, by the way, that was attached or fastened to the top of the cross in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. I want to give you, first of all, what I call the setting. Here in verse 32, it says there were two criminals. Malfactors is the King James word, and it literally just means evildoer. These guys weren't part of the Mickey Mouse Club. Okay? They probably didn't watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. They didn't want to be your neighbor. These were wicked, cruel, hateful, lost, depraved people. In another passage, it says that they were thieves and probably had done a lot of other things too that the Bible just chose not to mention. It mentions their crime so that we would know that at least to a certain degree, they were worthy of death. But their character stands in contradistinction or contrast to Jesus' character, who we all know he was completely sinless and perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, if there was anybody that didn't deserve to die, it was Jesus. If there was anybody that was completely sinless, the scripture says that neither did he sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. Utterly righteous, infinitely perfect. And here he is hanging between not just heaven and earth, but he's suspended between two thieves on either side. Nowhere can you find any greater contrast. The word Calvary that's used here in our English translation, our English version, in the Greek that word is krania. It's akin to the word cranium, meaning skull. In fact, the reason it was called Calvary, it's Golgotha in the Hebrew. The reason it was Calvary in the Greek is because they say that it was that that area where Calvary was or what is believed to be Calvary. And some of you have been to the Holy Land. You've been to Jerusalem. You've seen where they believe Calvary. I've not been there, but they say that it resembles that area. The topography resembles a skull. 
that was the common place where they would execute or crucify individuals. It is very interesting that the Bible says that they parted Jesus' garments there in verse 34. And they cast lots for them. They divided his clothes. This would include his headpiece or his shroud. His outer coat, his girdle, his sandals even. There were four Roman centurions, Roman guards assigned to each of the criminals, each of the prisoners there, the condemned men. So each one had four. Many scholars believed that each soldier took one of these as his own. One guy took the sandals. One guy took the shroud. One guy took the robe. Then there was a seamless woven inner garment that was much more expensive. And in order to determine who got to take that home instead of just ripping it to shreds and dividing that, they did something called casting lots, which is not something we do. But you would get the concept. They literally, the Roman soldier would take a helmet off and they'd take a stick or some type of marker and they would put it in the helmet. And literally, like we would do with a cup and some dice, they would shake up the helmet and that stick and then they would dump it out on the ground. And wherever that stick landed and pointed to what particular soldier, that's how they determined who got that garment. It's interesting that while the Son of God, his life was ebbing from him, these men were oblivious to what was going on. And they literally were playing games there standing at the foot of the cross. Now before you get too harsh and we get very judgmental of them. I'm afraid that many in the church of the living God today that we know what happened on the cross and we're standing there gazing up into the face of the Son of God and that many of us are playing games at the foot of the cross too. And God calls us to stop playing games and to come clean with Him. That's the setting. Notice what I call the sin. What is so offensive as we read this about this scene? It would have to be the abuse that Christ suffered and endured. It would have to be the injustice. You know, we live on this side of the cross. We know that he was who he was. We know he was God. We know he was sinless. It would have to be the rejection and the scorn. The word crucified there literally means to impale to a cross about this execution, this form of execution. Alfred... Edersheim, who was a scholar of a a bygone generation, he said, and I quote, the punishment was invented by the Romans to make death as painful and as lingering as the power of human endurance. In other words, that the Romans didn't, didn't invent crucifixion, but they developed and perfected crucifixion to produce the maximum amount of pain on the human body. Historians tell us that some crucified men lived as long as three days upon the cross. While others died after they literally were eaten alive by birds of prey having hung there so long. It was a most shameful, most cruel way to be executed. This is not counting the scourging that took place pre-crucifixion as a legal preliminary to every Roman crucifixion. That scourging would literally 
rip the torso and the back to shreds of the condemned man. Listen to Matthew 27 that sheds a little bit more light on the scene and the setting and the scorn that was taking place. Then were there two thieves crucified, one on the right, one on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, Jesus. The word revile there means to to verbally abuse. And it says they were wagging their heads. Can't you see it? They're not unlike us when we come upon a scene and maybe one of scorn and one of ridicule and mockery and we just shake our head. They were wagging their head, shaking their head at Jesus. Some perhaps in disbelief, some though in mockery and scorn and ridicule. And they were saying this, You that destroyed the temple and buildest it up in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also, the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. (laughs) Look at this. This man that opened blind eyes and raised dead people back to life. Now is his opportunity to really prove who he is. And he can't do anything now. What a sham. What a phony. What a joke. And if that wasn't enough, it wasn't just the mockery from the crowd. The mockery from the religious leaders. Simultaneously came the mockery from the two condemned criminals. Because they began to say, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. In other words, they were mocking, ridiculing, blaspheming, scorning. This is the opposite of sympathy. It's the opposite of compassion. We notice the shame, the crowd, the religious leaders, the two thieves, the criminals being crucified along with Jesus. All are saying the same thing and mocking Jesus. And then the onlookers that pass by. A.T. Robertson said, These passers-by look on Jesus as one now that is down and out and they jeer at their fallen foe. And here's Jesus hanging there, suffering, suffering, abandoned, betrayed, mocked, ridiculed, but totally innocent. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, and it is very interesting and very telling. He said that nothing torments a man when he is in pain more than mockery does. And I want you to think about that statement. Here's Jesus suffering the most intense, hateful, cruel pain that a human being could imaginably suffer. And instead of sympathy, he's receiving scorn and ridicule. But then we notice the Savior where he said, in the midst of this, Father, Forgive them. They know not what they do. What we have here in that statement is the greatest lesson ever on what to do when you are wronged. What to do when you are sinned against. 
What to do when you are hurt. What to do when you are abandoned. What to do when somebody plots against you. When somebody strategizes. When somebody lies about you. When somebody gossips about you. When somebody falsely accuses you. What do you do? When somebody walks out on you. What do you do? When somebody abuses you. What do you do? When somebody hurts you so deeply you can't even put it into words, what do you do? How are we supposed to respond? What action are we supposed to take when you're betrayed? When the dearest on earth to you turns and leaves? When you're cheated on? When you go through a divorce, when your business partner was deceptive and stole money, what do you do? How do you handle that? When you know somebody's talking about you behind your back, when you know you're getting chewed upon and spit out every chance somebody can, What do you do? What do you do when you get hurt by somebody? Jesus shows us right here what to do. So here's the takeaway. What do we do, preacher, when you get hurt? First of all, listen now. Are you still with me? Say amen. Listen. First of all, embrace reality. Because all of us in this room deal with mistreatment. If you're old enough to understand what I'm saying, then you've been hurt by somebody. You've been disappointed by somebody. You've been betrayed by somebody. How we deal with it is the issue and the choice we make. It's not a matter of if I'm going to be mistreated. It's a matter of how I'm going to deal with it. It's not a matter of if you're going to be wronged. It's a matter of what you choose to do. It's not a matter of if you're going to be disappointed. It's a matter of how you choose to handle it. Embrace reality. You're going to be hurt by people that want to hurt you. And sometimes you're going to be hurt by people that don't mean to hurt you. You're going to be hurt by people that hate you, and you're going to be hurt by people that love you. You're going to be hurt by people that do it deliberately, and you're going to be hurt by people that are completely oblivious that they hurt you at all. But we're all going to be hurt. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? Embrace reality. Number two, release it. To the only perfect judge. It's interesting. We know Jesus' mother was standing there. We know that the beloved apostle John was standing there. He was the only apostle at the crucifixion. We do know that there were some sympathetic followers of Christ, though not the disciples, sympathetic followers, several women who were standing there. 
We know that Joseph of Arimathea and perhaps even Nicodemus, who had become a disciple, that they were standing there. And others who were followers of Christ were standing there. It is very interesting to me, listen carefully, that the first appeal Jesus made verbally was not to any one of them. Now, you know what my tendency perhaps would have been? I'm being shamed. I'm being ridiculed. I'm being sinned against. And had I looked down and seen my dearest loved ones, I may have been tempted to say, can you believe what they're doing to me? You see, we all have a tendency when we're hurt when we're betrayed, when we're angry, when we're disappointed, to go run to other humans and to share that with them and tell them, you're not going to believe what so-and-so did. You're not going to And I'm not saying that that's not therapeutic in some way. Here's what I'm going to say. You may share it with half of Wayne County, but until you release it to God the Father you're never going to find healing. He released it to the only one who could right the wrong. Father! Release it to him. He already knows. Give it to him! Isn't that what David did in the Psalms over and over and over and over and over again? I mean, there are so many times he was hurt. I'm telling you, he was being chased by Saul. People were lying about him. And you know what the Psalms is? It is a collection of David pouring those things out to the Father. Lord, I can't do anything about it. Except give it to you. There are some individuals in this room, and I'm looking at you right now, and you, you have been crippled. Listen, you've been crippled by an offense. You've been crippled by words. You've been crippled by actions of somebody else, and you're trying to make heads or tails of it, and it's crippled you in your life, and you've gotten bogged down and stuck, and you've not gone anywhere because you can't get by it can't move past it you may never get over it but you at least you can't even move past it because you've yet to release it to the father see when you release it to the father you're acknowledging that he's sovereign that he allowed this to take place but that he's your only refuge and that he will wrong this he will right this wrong Have you released it to him? Lord, you know. God, I'm going to waste my life if I try to get even. I'm going to, I'm going to be spinning my wheels if I try to figure out what happened or why they're doing this or why they're saying this. Lord, I've got to release it to you. I can't take it anymore. I'm not going to carry this any longer. I give it to you. And then I close with this. Don't leave me. Don't get through before we're through now. Listen. Choose 
and refuse. Father, forgive them. The word forgive is a very interesting word in the New Testament. It literally means it's a word picture. Like you would take a piece of cargo and you come lay it on the deck of a ship. And then you get off the ship and somebody hoists the sail. And the wind blows it out to sea. I'm talking to some folks this morning. So many of us. We need to take whatever that is. And we need to step on the ship of grace. And put it down. And get off. And let God. You're going to have to make a choice this morning to choose to forgive. Jesus chose forgiveness, but he refused retaliation. He chose love, but he refused vengeance. He chose to express grace instead of, and then refused to express hatred or bitterness. I'm asking you this morning to choose to forgive. Let it go. It may have happened 50 years ago, but let it go. It may have happened yesterday. Let it go. You choose love. You choose grace. You choose mercy. You choose forgiveness. And you refuse to get even. You say, I can't do that, Christian. My dear precious friend, you can. When you release it to the Father, He will will make that possible for you. I racked my brain for days thinking about some big-time, highly emotional, reach-out-and-grab-you illustration. To close it out with. And I stopped. You know why? Because if you're breathing. (laughs) And you got a brain. You know full well what it's like to be hurt. Don't you? And you know full well what it's like. To have a choice to make. On whether or not you're going to choose to forgive. You've been there. And the illustration that I close with is yours. Because while I was preaching this morning. There was a name and there was a face. And there was an incident. That popped up in your spirit. That's your illustration. (laughs) And I have mine too. And I ask you this morning, based on the example of Jesus, will you give it to the Father? And then will you choose to let it go? You're here this morning and you're not a believer. You're not saved. 
forgiveness starts with Christ. And having your sins forgiven, my dear precious friend, the reason he was hanging on that cross was for your sins and mine. And he took your place and mine. If you say yes to him and open the door of your heart like you open the front door of your house, Jesus will save you today. I want to ask you, dear precious friend, to give your life to Christ today. But this room in every section is filled with people like me. Preacher, you ever been hurt? Yeah. So have you. And I'm going to ask you today to give it to the Father and to choose forgiveness. And I'm going to ask you to make your way to this old-fashioned altar and to spend some time talking to God about it. Let's do business with God today.